welcome back everyone. This is part B of our Hamlet edition of Chopin Shakespeare, your semi-regular podcast for Shakespearean headcanons, pairings, problematic faves, and all the rest. Just a reminder, because we're talking about Hamlet, we're dealing with some heavy issues, including emotional, verbal, possibly physical abuse, suicide, other generally depressing stuff, because it is a tragedy. So if any of that is triggering or upsetting to you, feel free to skip this week and we will see you next time. We are also going to be saying the M word, at least did in last episode, probably will in this. So if you're listening in a theater, be forewarned, upcoming Scots. Yes, don't get squashed by a piece of falling scenery or something like that. We don't want that. That would make us very sad. We're going to do a quick rehash of the plot and key ideas in Hamlet, and then we will jump into our problematic faves, the ships we would like to sink, and our hate-sex couple of the play. So, Prince Hamlet of Denmark is very unhappy. His dad is dead, his uncle and mom just got married and took the throne for themselves, his girlfriend's family doesn't approve of their relationship, and he's just been told by the ghost of his dead dad that Uncle Claudius murdered him to take the crown. Then again, Hamlet doesn't exactly help matters when he decides that the best way to get revenge on Claudius is to pretend to be crazy. With only his best friend Horatio in on the secret, Hamlet does a bang-up job of convincing everyone at court that he's completely off his rocker. And for four and a half acts, Hamlet plays mad, meditates on death, kills his girlfriend Ophelia's father, which makes her actually insane and also suicidal, freaks out his mom, gets his college roomies killed, stages a play, and conspicuously does not kill Claudius. Luckily, Ophelia's brother Laertes is way better at vengeance than Hamlet and challenges him to a duel with poison swords. By the end of the duel, Hamlet, Laertes, Claudius, and Gertrude are all dead, the Prince of Norway is now King of Denmark, and poor Horatio is left to tell the tale of how fucked up his best friend's family was. Best friend slash lover. As we discussed last time, there's a lot thematically going on in Hamlet, including Shakespeare dealing with questions of madness, certainly morality and ethics, action versus inaction, as noted, questions of suicide. Hamlet spends a lot of time contemplating that. Certainly, the roles between men and women are always up for discussion in Shakespeare. There's a lot going on. Historically, Shakespeare's plays about revenge almost always come down on the side of not pursuing vengeance, and we can argue about whether that's true here, but you can definitely look at that thematically over the course of several plays, Titus Andronicus and a few others. So obviously there's a lot more to talk about, so we will, as always, put more text in the show notes for you to investigate the historical background and themes of the play. Let's move on to our problematic faves. So problematic. There's really not a ship in this play that isn't problematic, except for arguably Hamlet Horatio. Even that, because let's be honest, any pairing that involves Hamlet is a little bit problematic. Okay, they're all problematic! Yay! Yay! <laughs> but we're going to talk about what makes them that way, and obviously there's no better place to start than Hamlet and Ophelia. We got into this a little bit last time, but it's not like you can say too much about why they're a problem. Yeah, my, my poor messed up babies. They're also one of my OTPs. <laughs> so sad. So sad. As one of my OTPs, they're like the best way that anything could have broken for those characters. But as we see in the play, nothing broke that way for them. <laughs> what we're left with instead is an epic shit show of emotional and verbal abuse, some really nasty misogyny, and different levels of betrayal on all sides. 
Not to mention the criminal double standards for women's sexual behavior and men. Yeah. Which gets back to the misogyny, but it's extremely clear here that it's fine for dudes like Larrity's to get it on and arguably Hamlet, but the minute Ophelia even thinks about it, she's a whore. There's no real alternative given, really, for either one of them. This is not a love triangle kind of play. Everyone is basically assuming that if Hamlet hooks up with anyone, it's going to be with Ophelia. And as everyone really doesn't notice, that wouldn't be a good idea right now. He's not prepared to be any kind of nice to anyone. No, even outside of what's going on with the revenge plot, right? We have a distraught young man who's clearly not ready to deal with the kind of questions that are confronting him, even before he sees the ghost, right? He's pissed off at his mom. He's mourning his dad, who he obviously has this incredible hero complex for. And he's contemplating suicide. He's contemplating suicide, so you don't even need to introduce a supernatural element for Hamlet to be an unsuitable partner for Ophelia, right? He's just not in the right mental state to be supportive to anybody. And much as I love her, and I do, Ophelia would not make a good queen. Ooh, man, just gonna throw that down. For all of her faults, Gertrude is a good queen. Gertrude gets shit done and is able to switch between the private and public masks with real facility. And Ophelia isn't able to compartmentalize like that. Everything is personal to her, in part because everyone is super into her personal life, but she's never really able to think that what's happening in front of her face isn't the absolute inner truth of the people making it happen. And while we see that Hamlet is devastatingly good at obfuscation and subterfuge, she's heartbreakingly not. She would be, at best, a very problematic queen. That's true. There's certainly a level of naivete. I think it's pretty clear that it's not her fault necessarily that that's true. She's in a world where that's what's expected and even required of her. I think that goes hand in hand with my biggest Ophelia issue, which of course is the passivity. This this is a young woman who is just acted upon by basically every other major character in the play, I guess with the exception of Horatio. Everyone's telling her what to do, everyone is manipulating her, and she just has no recourse for that. And it's extremely tragic, but it's also what's really frustrating about her as a character, especially when we're talking about women in Shakespeare. Like, there's no fight. She just dies. I would take issue with there being no fight. In the first scene with Laertes and Polonius both telling her, keep your legs shut, she pushes back unsuccessfully, but she does. Just a little bit. We're not dealing with a Rosalind here, but I don't think we're dealing with, you know, a Miranda either. God, I mean, I would, like, settle for a Desdemona in this case. Let's be real. I mean, Desdemona is unreachable goals for poor Ophelia, because Desdemona has no qualms about asserting her own sexual agency. She, like, straight up tells the Duke to his face, if you don't let me go off and bang this dude, I'm gonna be really pissed. Ophelia, on the other hand, is being told by literally everyone in her life, if you go off and bang this dude, we're all gonna be really pissed. Yeah, so it's impossible for her to exist outside of that environment. She's obviously a product of it. And yeah, this isn't necessarily to criticize someone who's clearly the victim of a lot of abuse. It's just what makes her difficult as a character to read and to watch. Just It's heartbreaking and extremely frustrating. Part of what makes it so sad, too, is that when she actually does go to her father for help, he turns right around and uses her as bait. Oh, yeah. Because there's that scene where she runs into his room and says, my lord, I have been so affrighted and then tells him this really freaky story about Hamlet coming upon her, holding her at arm's length and 
staring at her and sighing, not being fully clothed either, and then just piecing the fuck out. As you mentioned last episode, she doesn't know what's happening. She has no idea that anything has changed beyond the fact that she just told him maybe we shouldn't see each other so much. So she goes to the only authority figure she thinks she can rely on for help, who then turns right around and delivers her into the mercy of the guy who's just terrified the living crap out of her. The actions of everyone around Ophelia are ten times more repugnant and problematic than anything that she does. I mean, that's part of the problem, obviously, is that she is so subject to the prejudices and the whims of other people. She's in a society that is built to be that way. I mean, one of the reasons that Gertrude is somewhat out of that is not only because she's queen, but because she's a widow. Has a different level of sexual agency that Ophelia just cannot have as an unmarried young woman in court. Mostly, as you said, it's just really sad. And Hamlet plays into all of that. There were many, many ways he could have said we should take a break, and the kindest ones were not, you should go and join a whorehouse. Seriously. I get on some level probably not wanting to confide in this person who is the daughter of your most hated enemy's advisor. Right, but that's actually another perfect reason for why they're a problematic fave of mine, because he doesn't see her as herself. He sees her in relation to the men in her life and judges her by them. Absolutely. Polonius's daughter, she's Laertes's sister, and even to everyone else, right? She's Hamlet's lover. Ophelia doesn't get to just be Ophelia really at any point in the play. Until she's dead. Even then, right? They're fighting over her corpse. Literally, fighting over her corpse. <laughs> so gross. There's no better metaphor for the poor, poor girl's life than that. It, it's hard to feel good about that pairing. It's hard to feel good about her relationship with anyone in the play. It's hard to feel good about Hamlet in general, because as much as we sympathize with him, or we like resonate with the philosophy that he's talking about, he's a dick. There are two relationships that Hamlet has that make it really difficult for an audience to completely get behind him. One of them is the relationship he has with the audience, in which we've sat through this three-hour play feeling like we were owed some goddamn vengeance. When is it going to come? The other one is his relationship with Ophelia. Those are the two implicit contracts in which he is engaged that he behaves atrociously in. There's something to be said for like the discussion of how much of Hamlet's madness is feigned. I think you have to bring up that point whenever you have a character who's playing at being mad in Shakespeare. You dip down into that a little bit, and it starts to become your reality. I make the same argument for Edgar and Lear, but obviously it's much more prominent in Hamlet. Again, because his madness is so specific, what he says in his madness are things calculated to hurt. Oh, yeah. Especially Ophelia. He needles Polonia brilliantly, but what he says to Ophelia is intended to cripple her emotionally. I've seen that scene played as him trying to be cruel to be kind, to scare her so much that she just backs off and doesn't get in the way of his revenge plans. Same. That always feels hollow to me, though. Like, I never quite believe it. Right. It feels too easy. If you're going to engage with Hamlet, you have to engage with the foul in him as well as the good. And the most foul he ever is, is to Ophelia. Yeah, for sure. And that goes back to the misogyny that we've talked about a couple times, talking about a character who is furious, specifically with his mother, but he definitely projects that onto all women, including, well, especially Ophelia. It's just that there's only one other woman in this cast. Yeah, real sausage fest. 
Whistler Shakespeare, come on. But you're right, it's rare for there to be two women in a Shakespeare cast and for one of them to be as passive as Ophelia is, which I think is why her madness freaks everyone out at the end. Yeah, it's disturbing to have this voiceless character start speaking. And not be able to shut her up. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely, because they definitely try. Gertrude doesn't even want to talk to her. They're all repulsed by her. The flower thing is obviously upsetting to everyone. But yeah, Hamlet and Ophelia, I love them, but deeply problematic. Deeply. I think the only one that leaves us with is Claudius and Gertrude. They were an OTP we talked about last time, so it's probably fair to talk about them as a problematic fave. Yeah, that's fair. Not to put too fine a point on it, he killed his brother to be with her, and she was totally cool with that. <laughs> yeah, the problem is clearly the murder, you guys. <laughs> it's not subtle. As we talked about last episode, once you take out the murder, this is actually a pretty enviable relationship, especially in this crapsack world. Right. It's a meeting of minds, because as you pointed out, she's a pretty damn good queen, and he's kind of mediocre as a king, at best. Yeah, he's not that great. He kind of fucks everything up. But she obviously understands the subtleties of being at court. She knows what to do with people. She can keep Hamlet's childhood friends straight. She knows their names. She knows lots of people's names. She knows how to manage people in a way that he's just not particularly adept at. They work as a partnership, too. But, you know, you can't really take the murder out of the equation, because <laughs> they wouldn't be a couple without the murder. Their murder is the reason that they're together. As we noted last time, they almost certainly engaged in some sort of adultery before the murder, so not an ideal situation. I mean, we can maybe sympathize with Gertrude a little bit for being probably in a marriage originally with King Hamlet that was possibly kind of loveless. Like, there's a reason that she was drawn to Claudius, and I don't think it's just because he's, you know, well endowed, although probably, maybe. I don't think it hurts. <laughs> Shouldn't anyway. Again, as we mentioned last time, we don't really get any perspective on her first marriage that doesn't come from Hamlet, so that in and of itself is a dubious source. Yeah, he's so objective. What are you talking about? The picture that he paints of their marriage. Listening to that picture, you can see where Hamlet gets his own Madonna whore complex from. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> what he's talking about is that his father was so loving that he took such good care of Gertrude. He protected her from everything, wanted nothing but the best for her. You never really hear about King Hamlet engaging with Gertrude's mind. No in the way that Claudius does. Or, again, not to put to find a point on it, engaging with her body. No, it's, it's so idealized, and I think that probably speaks a lot to it in its own way, right? That you have this attractive, pious facade that probably doesn't have a lot under it. And then, on the other hand, you have Claudius, who is much less, ironically, pretentious, given that he spends the whole play pretending he didn't actually kill his brother. <laughs> you can see where the appeal would come from in someone more blunt and carnal if you'd been handled with kid gloves your entire marriage. Right, and, and treated as a symbol and not as a person. To have someone see you as an individual and treat you that way and also be attracted and appreciative of that. Yeah. Of course you'd go for that. The question, as always, is how far? <laughs> yeah. So we kind of brought this up last time about how much she knows. My feeling about what Gertrude knows about the murder is that probably she was not in on it, but I think she was probably also more than willing to overlook the very obvious signs that he had something to do with it and or was plotting something. I would absolutely agree with that. She's certainly very quick to marry her husband's brother. Hamlet points that out, right? Two months? Not two months. Oh, right. Less than a month? Is it a month? What is it? It's definitely short. It's like 
like a little under two months. It says, nay, not so much, not two. There you go. So, yeah, this very convenient thing happens, and you're not going to look too closely at it, right? She doesn't look closely at it. She just goes with it, marries him, because that's what she wants. And so far as Gertrude's guilt goes, there is that one line of hers in the closet scene. Hamlet has done his whole portrait spiel, and what she says is, Oh, Hamlet, speak no more. Thou turnst mine eyes into my very soul, and there I see such black and grained spots as will not leave their tinct. There's been considerable debate about what she actually means by that line, but it's also certainly been interpreted that she was complicit in the murder, not just willing to be the beneficiary of it. So it's a fair question. I don't think you can be decisive about it either way. Shakespeare probably is very happy to have us question it on both sides. Absolutely. No, he doesn't let us draw any firm conclusions at all in this play. <laughs> Which is an interesting contrast, too, because uh, obviously, famously, we have Lady Macbeth. Yeah, I said it. Who comes later than Gertrude. She's later than Gertrude. She's not only a willing participant, she talks him into it, or at least back into it. Eventually, we will do Macbeth, and we will talk about that relationship. She has problematic fave written all over it. <laughs> it's the problematic fave. But yeah, it's much clearer what her role is and what her opinion about what's happened is. Gertrude, by contrast, it, her motivations are much more obscure. I think we mentioned last time, we're pretty grounded in what Hamlet thinks about everyone and what he knows, which is odd for a play, to have such a narrow point of view in some ways. But no, you're right. Gertrude is, is left deliberately ambiguous. Lady Macbeth's complicity is well documented, but Gertrude's is a question mark. And I think you're right that Shakespeare means it to be that way. Hamlet's uncertainty is important throughout the play. It's why the only murder in the first four acts is Polonius. I mean, I guess you can make an argument for Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, but they don't die on stage, so I don't count it. If a ghost tells you that your father was murdered, it's reasonable to be a little bit skeptical about that. He actually takes precautions to ascertain the truth of these assertions before he acts. Right. So as frustrating as his inaction is, I think it speaks not only to his more deliberate nature, but also to the fact that he is genuinely uncertain about what's happened, what's going on at court, how complicit everyone is, you know, including his mother, including Ophelia. So he really does not know who to trust, and that's important. It speaks to his behavior. It doesn't excuse it, but it does explain it. It is the motivation behind it, arguably. Claudius's side of this problematic fave is really compelling. As we mentioned last time, he finds himself incapable, almost, of doing anything, at least openly, that will hurt Gertrude. The reason he's so underhanded in how he deals with Hamlet, it's not political, it's personal. He doesn't want to upset her because, you know, Hamlet at a certain point has given him enough ammunition that he could deal with him as he would choose to. Yeah, I mean, right about the time when he kills the king's most trusted advisor, right? anyone else would get thrown in jail or executed. But he can't bear to hurt Gertrude that way. Yeah, he won't do it. He has a line. <laughs> <laughs> of course. The queen, his mother, lives almost by his looks, and for myself, my virtue or my plague, be it either which, she's so conjunctive to my life and soul that as the star moves not but in his fear, I could not but by her. That does make it very clear, doesn't it? There's not much room for wiggling there. He's crazy about her. He loves Gertrude. Committed murder so that they could get married, among other things. I don't think the power is necessarily negligible to him in this equation, but if it didn't come with her hand attached to it, I don't think he would do it. There are three things that he feels he has to pray for forgiveness for reaching for. My crown, my own ambition, and my queen. And that third one is clearly the most important. Yeah, because, you know, Shakespeare saves it up for the last line. <laughs> so you remember. It's interesting, too, that he can't separate her from the power. 
She isn't, though, in a really striking way. Even if she wanted to exist outside of that, right, it would never be that simple for her. So in a way, I mean, Gertrude is the crown part of being king is this queen, this specific queen. You can't divide her from that. She's not free from that. That's true. And he lets her stay with that as one of her roles, too. Oh, yeah, he doesn't diminish her. He doesn't put her away. Like, none of that. If you can get past the murder and the fratricide. If those aren't a problem for you. Yeah. No, I mean, if. Big if. Some people argue they're not a problem for Gertrude. Gertrude only really has a problem with Claudius when he moves against her son. Yes. That's when it starts, when Hamlet tells her, they're out to kill me. My friends, whom I will trust as adders fanged. And she knows that Claudius set them on. She knows when he sends Hamlet to England that one way or another, Claudius has it out for her son, as he himself rightly diagnosed. That's the sticking point for her. That's the other thing. He knows her, and vice versa. They see each other. They understand each other. And in a play where most people don't, that's telling, too. If it weren't for that murder, man, I'd ship him so hard. If it wasn't for that murder. Yeah, no, it's just, I mean, that is the problem in the problematic fave, is the murder. Alas. It is a big one. Hamlet calls it incest, but it isn't. But, you know, there's a lot of obscure Bible stuff about what you are and are not supposed to do when your brother dies and has a wife, but no heirs or with an heir. As with so many things in the Bible, there are interpretations for both sides. Historically speaking, this is probably the most relevant to Henry VIII and Catherine. Or one-sided Leviticus and the other-sided Deuteronomy. <laughs> exactly. Certainly relevant in Shakespeare's time. Kind of shaped the political climate he was writing in. <laughs> Just a little bit. Not so you'd notice. So slight. Alrighty, I think we have some ships to sink, do we not? We do. We have a lot of ships to sink. Good lord. Do you want to start with Hamlet Ophelia? We've established the problems with that ship pretty well, so I think sinking it is a relatively small matter at this point. Hamlet's an abusive asshole. Ophelia deserves better, so that ship deserves to sink. I still do ship them. They're still one of my OTPs, but I really can't argue with you. My shipping them is a matter of potentiality, what could have been and what they could have made of each other, but it's very clear that in the actual world they're living in, they're no good to each other. Yeah. I think your read jives with the play. I'm not invested enough in it to root for it, unfortunately, and that is mostly because he is horrible to her. As has already become a theme in Sink That Ship, she deserves better. Oh, God. Shakespeare, why do you create these really cool, compelling female characters and then just stick them with assholes? Wow. Man, it's just, it's chronic. I haven't seen a ton of fix-fic for Ophelia, but what I've seen mostly has her fake her death, escape Elsinore, and wind up with Horatio, since he's the only other survivor. God, that's lazy. I think it's really lazy. I think it's bullshit. I think it completely ignores the depth of the relationships that both Ophelia and Horatio had with Hamlet, which are clearly immensely important to both of them. I mean, obviously, they're both devastated by the loss of him. Horatio almost commits suicide to be with him. Yeah. And Ophelia goes mad. Yeah. Kills herself. It also never felt right to me that Ophelia's escape involves finding a more acceptable dude to be in charge of her. I'm all for the idea that Ophelia makes it out of their alive and does something else with her life like fight zombies. Makes it out of there unalive, as it were. <laughs> Whatever her biological status is, that she escapes. But yeah, just sticking her with someone else, I mean, that's that's pretty bowdlerized. As we've established, right, I love survivor pairing. 
parents, but well, obviously that doesn't qualify for all sorts of reasons, but it wouldn't say anything about what had happened in the play either. It would just make us feel better. As you said, it's lazy. I also really resent it because there's no scene of the two of them together. Yeah, they don't interact. I mean, we can imagine that they have different sorts of relationships, and I think that's fine. Like I said last time, I'm somewhat comforted by the idea of their being friends, for example, that they can at least commiserate about this intense person that they've both fallen in love with. Beyond that, what are they going to get out of it? What do they even have in common? We don't know. They never spend time together in the play. They never interact. So sure, if you want to come up with something and that's your brand of fix-it-fix, like I'm not going to criticize you because, again, no kink shaming. But you're going to have to work really hard to make it believable. It needs to be more than just they both made it through and they were both in love with Hamlet. Because then they're just being with each other because they can't be with Hamlet. And that's not really a recipe for happiness I want for either one of them. No, I mean, if you want to tell a sad story about that, I don't know why you need to add any sadness to Hamlet, but if that was your jam, I think you could. I think you could do something interesting kind of literarily with that. Because we've seen stories that work out that way before. People united by their grief or by their experiences or the fact that they both made it through this terrible thing. That's not that unusual. But I think we also recognize all the ways in which those relationships are often unsatisfying for the people involved, for the viewer, everybody. There's something a little bit hollow about it. I think it's the refuge of people who don't want to think too deeply about what something like this would actually do to people. I think it's easy, and that's not good for this play. Easy doesn't work here. Yeah, I think it definitely does get away from the psychology, which is kind of the whole point in Hamlet, right? Is mentally getting into what these relationships are, who Hamlet is, what's been lost, as you've said a couple times. So I guess I can see where it might be a little bit comforting, and for that reason, it's not a ship I would necessarily sink, but it just kind of falls into that weird category of ships that you don't ship, but you can kind of understand why other people ship it. For me personally. I think it's lazy. If you want fix it fic where two people end up together having survived trauma, just let Romeo and Juliet survive. Gosh, really? Yeah, they deserve it. All the shit they went through. Damn. I mean, really. And we'll do that one too, because obviously there are some fun ships in Romeo and Juliet. But I think at the heart of it, probably goes back to what you said, you really would have to find a compelling reason for them to be together beyond who Hamlet is and what he meant to both of them. Because that might unite you for like a little while, but it wouldn't keep you together. Right. There'd have to be a reason beyond survivor's guilt. Absolutely. And again, if it was some misplaced sense of you understand me or honor on his part or on her part, okay, that could be psychologically interesting. But as with ships that often involve people who don't interact much, you have to do way more heavy lifting. So why not just do the easy ones? With textual support. With textual support. It's always easier with textual support. I think we have some ships that we haven't talked about as much that we need to, you know, fire the cannons on. Yeah, we do. And tops in that, as far as I'm concerned, is Hamlet Gertrude. Oh, man. Yeah, so getting into the actual incest in the play, uh, not that it happens canonically, by the way. But everyone from Freud on has read this, I would argue, fairly correctly as a kind of Oedipal thing. Uh, yeah. I mean, you could almost call it the Hamlet complex and not the Oedipal complex. There's no way that a healthy mother-son relationship has the son picturing his mom having sex with his uncle quite that much. At all, really. I'm going to draw the hard line there. Regardless of what Hamlet thinks, there's actually nothing wrong with acknowledging that your parents are sexual beings. Oh no, that's not the problem. <laughs> it's the obsession. The problem comes when you're lecturing them about it in a scene that has been interpreted several times on stage and screen as deeply 
deeply sexually edible. Yeah, uh, the staging for that scene is never comfortable. Granted, it's not supposed to be, but in general, it's bad. I mean, we're talking about, first of all, a conversation that happens in a very private space. It's not appropriate, really, for him to be there anyway. And it's also the only time all play that Hamlet ever really loses control. Yeah, he just goes off on her. The physicality of that moment is often played to deliberate effect as well. Mm-hmm. Disturbing effect. And as I think you noted in our outline, Shakespeare practically seems to ship it. The guy is writing this. He's writing this relationship where Hamlet is dwelling really uncomfortably on his mother's sexual agency. Yeah. Obsessing. He's obsessing. Yeah, good word for it. There are a few things he talks as regularly about in the play. And he has some choice lines on that. Unlike what Claudius does in terms of Gertrude, where he sees her fully as she is, Hamlet has this really repulsive idea of what middle age should do to a woman. You cannot call it love, for at your age the heyday in the blood is tame. It's humble and waits upon the judgment. So basically he's saying, yeah, you're old now. You shouldn't be having sex. Old people should not be having sex. Even though she's what, like 40 tops? Right. And it's not hard to see that as the result of watching how his father treated his mother. Almost certainly. Yeah. There's a hangout. Whether you're old or young, Hamlet has fucked up ideas about how much sex you should be having. Apparently just like none at all in general. So speaks the guy who's clearly not getting laid at all. Well, could have solved some problems. Just one woman's opinion. <laughs> Again, the Margaret Atwood piece where Gertrude talks back in the closet scene. She mentions that. She's like, you, you need a proper girlfriend, not like little what's-her-face with the corsets. <laughs> like one good lay would really sort you out. Yeah, there's a clear solution. Not to everything, but at least to that. So yeah, there are clear reasons to sink this ship. I don't think it's a mystery. Even if it were an affectionate relationship, I would argue for sinking this one. Yeah. It's not like there is no affection, because they clearly care about each other. They just might care a little too much. Yeah. There's clearly, again, like a level of judgment and vitriol, uh, particularly on his part. She's not participating in this is the other thing, so we're not even... I would argue talking about anything consensual. This is an assault. Yeah, yeah. Whether you play it sexually or not, this is an assault. This scene is often played very abusively, like him pushing her around the room at minimum. So yeah, there's nothing appealing about any of this. So this is a pretty easy ship to sink. Just sink it. Don't send us fic, please. Not for this one. Write it. We're not going to judge that, but we don't want to read this. We do not kink shame, but there's nothing healthy about this. The fact that this is like borderline canonical is really uncomfortable on top of everything else. So yeah, just no. Fire away. <laughs> Nor is it the only like creepy incest in the play or like pseudo incest, anything approaching incest, because we also have Ophelia's fucked up family, which we haven't talked a lot about yet. They are also really concerned with how much sex she is or isn't having. Overly so. I mean, there's a whole scene at the beginning of the play, yeah? Mm-hmm. Yeah, keep your legs closed. Each of them goes to great pains to remind her that good girls stay virgins until marriage. Yes. So this is Polonius, her father, and Laertes, her brother. And they're just thinking way too much about what's going on in her chaste treasure. Because, again, really mentioning it at all is too much. Just right. it's too much. With her and the men in her family who talk to her about it, they don't see it in terms of her. They see it as how it will reflect on them. That's the closing argument of Polonius's speech to her. He does this whole frustratingly exhaustive series of labored puns on the word tender, and it wraps up with him saying not to crack the wind of the poor phrase, thus you'll tender me a fool, which either means you'll make an idiot of me by sleeping around with the prince, or you're gonna give me a bastard child that is his. Yep. 
Either way, they're not really concerned about what effect it might have on her. All they're thinking about is what it will do to their reputations. Exactly. And we've already discussed the double standard. Ophelia herself points out that Laertes really has no business telling her what to do with her legs because his are clearly open. Laertes the mantelet. Mantelet. I mean, he went to France, so. Comes to the territory. <laughs> I guess so. But yeah, you can overly read into that. Obviously, it's a similar preoccupation that Hamlet has. That the fact that all of these men in these women's families are way too invested in whether they're having sex, how much sex they're having. It's gross. It's just gross, you guys. And uncomfortable and really, really obvious in a play where people are talking this much about incest. Right? Towards the end of the play, we have this confrontation between Hamlet and Laertes, again, literally over Ophelia's dead body. Trying to see who loved her more. Who loved her more? I don't see either one of them having displayed that much care for her when she was actually alive. No, it's this weird dick measuring contest about who feels worse now. Utterly meaningless. However, while that ship desperately needs to be sunk, it is a perfect segue into our hate sex couple of the month. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We had to stretch for our hate sex couple a little bit last time, you'll remember. It is such an easy grab here. Oh my god. Oh my god. Hamlet and Laertes just, like, need to have angry hate sex instead of this whole poison swords duel. God, they would feel so much better. And nobody would die. No one would die and they could overthrow Claudius together. Oh my god, I really need this to happen actually. <gasps> oh, please send us this fic. Fortinbras is not the only Hamlet foil. Laertes is also a foil because here again you have a son attempting to avenge his father's death and wreaking a lot of collateral damage along the way. He actually does succeed to Laertes' credit. Yes. No, he does. You know, just also helps to lay the groundwork for three other named characters dying in the same scene. Yet another pawn in the game is Laertes. Yeah. Which is, is tough. To an extent, Hamlet never has to deal with that in the same way other characters do, but he is the prince, so... Things are a little easier for him than for other people. It's true. So Laertes, uh, effective at revenge, almost overthrows the government, has a weird relationship with his sister, also, I guess, needs to get laid a little bit more, or maybe just by Hamlet and he would feel better. I think unlike Hamlet, he's been getting successfully laid on the regular, but it's that vengeance thing. Yeah. He doesn't need vengeance. He just needs to top for a little. Just a little bit. It's fine. Mm -hmm. And Hamlet probably just needs to be on the bottom. I mean, Hamlet needs to get laid. Like, anyone who offers, he should just accept. I'm just saying, it'd probably be good for him to assume that role. It would be interesting. It'd be a challenge for him. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason why it doesn't... Well, there are a lot of reasons why it doesn't happen, but... <laughs> no, there's just one. Uh, it's He won't get out of his own way. But yeah, they would have amazing hate sex, those two. God, they would... I mean, just that moment over the grave where they're about to duel over her dead body. And I love Horatio in that scene, by the way, because he's just like, please shut up. Please just stop. Oh, please. <laughs> don't take my boyfriend. It I mean, he says, good, my lord, be quiet. <laughs> <laughs> Say that more, Horatio. He needs to hear it more. I don't think he really felt that, like, until that moment. But in that moment, he's just like, please stop talking. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> but yeah, they have this moment. It's like, I feel more things than you do. Oh, yeah? Prove it. Prove it. Yeah. <laughs> No, they make an excellent hate sex couple. As you pointed out, I think it would solve a lot of issues in the play. Because they're not really being subtle with the swords anyway. God, no. No. I mean, I'll grant you, sometimes a sword is just a sword, but in this case, it is a penis. Again, like, the most edible of plays. <laughs> There's so much Freud in this play. One of my challenges with it, personally. But it's okay. It's still lots of fun. But then, it's not just about the hate sex, because they do have, actually, that fairly lovely moment at the end where they kind of recognize one another and what's happened. 
husband and have a moment of mutual forgiveness. Yeah, I think as I mentioned in the key ideas, Laertes is the only other person besides Horatio who gets close to Hamlet's own realization that it's not about fighting death or choosing death, it's about accepting death. What he manages to do in that final scene is, without having the psychological background, to get there nevertheless, to realize that it's not if you die, it's how you die. Yeah, that they get to understand that together. <laughs> it's so shippy. It is so shippy in some ways. And he begs his forgiveness before he dies. He confesses. It's not that unusual necessarily for Shakespeare's kind of secondary villains. We see something similar happen with Edmund, right? But it's much more believable with Laertes than with Edmund. With Laertes, I buy it. Yeah, with Edmund, it feels like a little disingenuous, as is everything he says. The thing about Laertes as what I would call a minor villain is that in a play of people lying, he's being extremely honest. Mm. He means everything that he's saying. He feels all of it. Even his weird relationship to Ophelia, whatever Hamlet thinks, it's actually not a pretense. It's, it's real. He's grief stricken. It's one of the similarities between the two of them than his siblings, that she's incapable of seeing beyond the mask to the person within, and he's pretty much incapable of performing a mask. Yeah, he can't really lie, you know? I mean, all he can do is act. In stark contrast to Hamlet, really his only option is to come there with his sword drawn and demand satisfaction from Claudius, and then Hamlet. There's not really another option for Laertes. He's not smart enough to do anything else, and he's not subtle enough to do anything else. Yeah, unlike with Edmund, whose motivation for that recanting makes no sense, you understand Laertes' motivation. You have all through the play. Edmund says right up front, I'm just going to do what I do and hell with anything else. But Laertes isn't nearly so nihilist. He has reasons for everything he does. And they're understandable reasons to the basic human brain. I was going to say, yeah, they're not necessarily bad reasons. Talking about a man who lost his family and his sister to someone who he genuinely believes used her. So he has every reason to hate Hamlet. He has every reason to be angry with Claudius. To his credit, it does take Claudius a long time to talk him down and a lot of effort and Gertrude literally holding him back. It's funny, I don't think you see a lot of characters like Laertes in Shakespeare. He's weirdly honorable at the end of the day. I think you put your finger on it that he tells the truth, and he's one of the only people in the cast who does, which Hamlet could really learn from. I was gonna say, we joke about the hate sex scene and all that, but like, can you imagine if Hamlet had been so lucky to have Laertes as his friend earlier in the play? Well, damn. I mean, that'd be a whole different play then. Right? This isn't a diss on Horatio, because you guys know I love Horatio, genuinely. But one thing you can say for Laertes is he probably wouldn't be so awe-stricken by Hamlet as to not tell him the truth. Yeah. No, I mean, I think Horatio loves Hamlet too much not to enable him in some ways. And Laertes would just push back. Yeah, and you're like, that's crazy. Why don't you just confront him? No, that's literally crazy. It's crazy. Why Why would you put on a play? What What does that solve, man? Like, nothing. Also, will, like, will you go and talk to my sister? She's really upset. She's so upset, and please stop being a dick. But yeah, <laughs> Hamlet took up with the wrong sibling. <laughs> it's not Ophelia's fault. She can't be what Larity says. That's impossible. But it's funny that they're both so ill-equipped in these different ways, and that obviously is reflected in what happens to them and their relationships with Hamlet. They weren't prepared for any of this. And in a lot of ways, it's not fair to anybody, but it's really unfair to both of them. Polonius's family is collateral damage. Yeah, it is partly their father's fault. Like, let's not forget that. But it's not their kingdom, you know. It's not their responsibility. But it ends up being their destruction, too. Poor babies. 
Laertes. That's weird. I've never liked Laertes that much. I know, me neither. Really feel for him right now. This hate sex couple section is just a wild card. I never know what's going to happen. Feels. Feels are going to happen of one kind or another. And pirate sex. Always pirate sex. <laughs> Ooh, speaking of pirates. <laughs> we didn't even talk about the pirates. We didn't talk about the pirates. Hamlet runs into pirates. He does, because Shakespeare loves pirates, but who doesn't? Totally off stage, too. It's not fair. We never get to see the pirates, and I'm genuinely sad about that, because this play is so long, and there could have been room for pirates. One can hope, I suppose, that Hamlet gets laid well with the pirates. I don't think so, because he's just as uptight when he gets back. I mean, if he's getting laid at any point, I would hope it's with Horatio, but that doesn't seem that likely either. Well, unless something interesting was happening directly before the um, special providence in the fall of the sparrow speech. One can only hope. I would be in favor of the argument that a good lay finally helped him realize the inevitability of death. That's a really good lay if that's what happened. I mean, let's not underestimate the power of Horatio. Uh, No, I mean, clearly he has it. And he's been pining for so long. Pining. I'm sure he made it worthwhile. But yeah, that is likewise my hope that they did manage to find some time for that before the end. It's a tricky headcanon. It's not a happy play, y'all. Like, there's just, there's not a lot. As I think we've said, the most you can do is go write some fix-it fic and put whoever together that you want. If you want to send it to us, we'll probably read it. But not with the incest, okay? Please? Yeah. Other stuff. Fun stuff. Stuff that's not biologically related. Yeah. You're just going to get back to the sadness. You're just going to end up right back where you were. Take a lesson from the Lannisters. Incest never works out. Does not. Ugh. Game of Thrones. Anyway, that's a can of worms we are not opening. Do you want to talk about Hamlet, Fort and Bras? Hamlet has the same kind of hero worship relationship that he has with his father for Fort and Bras, but they never actually meet. No, yeah. He clearly admires him, partly because Fort and Bras is doing everything that Hamlet can't do. Right. No, it's an envy thing, primarily. Yeah. And that would make for some interesting hate sex, but I don't think it's a patch on Hamlet Laertes. No, not at all. It's not even comparable. Also, I mean, man, that would make Fort and Bras Horatio extra weird, wouldn't it? Oh, poor Horatio. Poor Horatio. That's the moral of the story, guys. Poor Horatio. Yeah, if you don't walk away from Hamlet thinking that, then you read a different play. Or you just saw a really bad Horatio. I guess it's possible. I think I've been lucky enough to see really good Horatios, so. The Oscar Isaac Hamlet has Keegan-Michael Key as Horatio, which I thought was cool casting. And of course, I love the idea of Oscar Isaac as Hamlet. Yeah, that's acceptable for many reasons. (laughs) He is definitely pretty and charismatic enough to pull it off because those are important Hamlet qualities because otherwise he's just an asshole. Right. Hamlet needs to be the kind of person who can inspire someone like Horatio to do whatever he says. Right. And to charm Ophelia. Like, despite what he says, I'm going to bet that it was not actually easy. She has a speech where she goes over everything that he was, at least all these these wonderful qualities that are being wasted. So your Hamlet's actually got to back that up. Yeah, because an unappealing Hamlet, you just spend three hours wondering what the point is. I mean, sometimes I feel that way anyway. I'm going to be honest. Not my favorite play. But yeah, in case you guys haven't noticed, Hamlet is the little black dress of his own play. You can pretty much ship him with anybody. It's not like other pairings don't exist, but there's very little material for them. And as you've said, we see so much of this play from Hamlet's perspective that the interesting relationships that people have are pretty much all with Hamlet. Yeah, so I'm comforted by the idea that Ophelia could go find someone else or Horatio, but you really have to stretch and go beyond the text to do that. We've just about covered these melancholy Danes and all of their adjacent problems. We will do a comedy next time, guys. So Thank God. It'll be happier. We hope you still enjoy this one and obviously feel free to tweet us with your fic recommendations, with your faves, with your thoughts. We love to talk to you about Shakespeare and your various ships. Thanks for listening.
This show is produced by us, Julia and Liz, as part of the Adjective Sphinx Network. The music we use is Almain One by John Bull and can be found at museopen.com. You can find links for more info in the show notes. Find us and our sibling shows on Twitter at Adjective Sphinx or email us at adjectivesphinx at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please rate it on iTunes and leave a review. Thanks for listening.